Today's episode is brought to you by Craftsy, calling all crafters. Are you ready to dive deep into your favorite crafting projects and learn some new techniques along the way? Then it's time to join Craftsy Premium Membership. For only $1.49, you'll receive a full year of access to expert-led tutorials, patterns, and projects in every category you can imagine. With a massive library of resources at your fingertips, you'll be able to create your best work yet and bring your crafting dreams to life. Don't wait. Sign up at CraftsyOffers.com and discover the endless possibilities of Craftsy Premium Membership. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 251 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about owning a local yarn shop. With my guest, Sally Moore. Sally is the owner of Parker Avenue Knits, a local yarn shop in Detroit, Michigan. She opened the shop in December 2021. Sally is also a litigation attorney and has been practicing law since 1986. To Sally, litigation is an advanced selling exercise. Evaluating facts and assessing circumstances leads to the meaningful attainment of goals, whether you're in the courtroom or you're selling yarn. She began knitting when she was 10 years old and has been an avid knitter for the past 15 years. And one thing she loves about knitting is that it's an exercise in self-expression within the confines of a pattern, allowing her to both adhere to rules and showcase her individuality. So Sally Moore, welcome. Thank you, Abby. I am so glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. I met you first in person at H&H Americas when you came and worked for a stretch of time in the Craft Industry Alliance booth, which I so appreciate. And you are also so naturally good at it. Like random strangers walk up, they're like, what is this? You know, and then you have to talk to them and explain it to them. And I had never met you before, but immediately you were like explaining this business to them completely well. And I was like, wow, this this person knows how to knows how to talk to people. That's that's what I do. <laughs> so that thought that was pretty that was pretty amazing. So um I I understand that you grew up in Detroit. So tell us a little bit about what you were like as a kid and um were you creative? Were you knitting? Were you know what was your household like? Oh my goodness. Um, yes, I am born and raised in Detroit, in Detroit proper. Uh, Detroit is one of those cities like Chicago, like New York, where people say Detroit. And then when you ask them where, they give you the name of some suburb. So <laughs> the, the, I grew up in Detroit proper and, um, you know, just ordinary. I, I don't know what's ordinary or common. Um, but my mother was a crocheter and a knitter. And I remember as to this day, some of the things that she created for me, outfits, a a cape with raggedy Ann buttons, um, a a pantsuit that I carry the the photo of me styling at about five or six years old, uh, my little crocheted two-piece pantsuit. 
I carry that that photo actually in one of my knitting bags uh, because it is one of my prized possessions and and favorite memories. So that was sort of my exposure. It was just a thing. My mother did Afghans, and it was an ordinary part. She wasn't fanatical. But it was just an ordinary part of something I saw going on in my home. I tried my hand at it at about 10, and it didn't click. Uh, I I was very much one of those, I didn't get it right the first time. The world is going to end. I can never do this. Don't ever, you know, I did the same thing trying to make my first cake. So it was, that was just my personality. So it didn't take, and I moved on. And then I went back to it much later in life. I just kind of had some quiet time um, or found myself stumbling into this yarn shop that was in Detroit at the time. And it just created a world that I could exist in. I picked it back up and I've been going for the last 15 plus years now. Right, right. Okay. So in the in between there, um, you went to college and law school and and started this career. That can be a pretty intense experience. Um, and, and I understand that your sister is, is is she a lawyer as well? Yes. Yes. Yeah. My right. sister as well. And our father uh, was also a lawyer and a judge for 30 years. So um, it was it was part of my mother was an, uh, an educator, a teacher and librarian. Okay. So we that that was kind of our world. Um, so I, I think I don't see it the same as a lot of people. It was very ordinary to me. It was law school. College is just an extension of high school in my world and college and law school is just what you do until you figure out what you want to do. Um, you just keep learning. I can't, you know, mm-hmm. I just came from a household of persons who truly valued education, who exhibited the benefits of education. And therefore I knew it, there were, no, there were just some non-negotiables not just put upon me, but ultimately instilled in me that this is a good thing. Um, my father was an eight-year-old orphan. Uh, his oh. Both his parents were deceased by the time he was eight. He was kind of in the middle of a set of his full siblings. There were five of them. And he was, was sort of in, in the middle, uh, three, three boys and two girls. And um, so, you know, he, everything that he did for us, everything that he built, everything he achieved was because, not because someone was making him do it, but because he just believed in doing the next, doing the next. And he came up in a time that was you know, the automotive, he actually worked in automotive. It's a regular Horatio Alger story. He comes to Detroit from Chicago. He's 15. My father was a very, very large man. He actually just, just passed away this past April um, at 89, but he was a physically large man and always kind of a big husky kid. So he was 15 going to high school and working in the plant because in Pontiac, Michigan, 
um, in the 50s, early mid early 50s, uh, we had a lot of automotive plants. So he could work for Cadillac, he could work for Pontiac, etc. And even though he had these good jobs at the time, he graduated from high school and walked away from them to go to college, which was a little progressive at the time. So, but it was what he believed in. And he ended up going to the University of Michigan. And then following that, he went to Wayne State uh, Law School. My mother is born and raised in Detroit. They met along the way. And the rest is history. Right. Wow. What an incredible model and (laughs) of a hardworking, determined person who truly um, yeah, Horatio Alger for sure, like truly created his own success. Um, that's an incredible Absolutely. legacy for you to, to grow up with, um, and very yeah. inspiring. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So you went to law school, um, and picked up knitting was knitting a way for you to like, I'm wondering that first trip to that yarn store, were you feeling bored? Were you feeling stressed? Were you just curious? Like was knitting, at that moment in your life, filling some sort of, you know, kind of need for you? It was, it was community. In retrospect, it was community. I wish I could remember what I was doing in the Fisher building on, which is where the business was located. And the Fisher building is an iconic uh, structure, architectural structure here in, in Detroit. And quite frankly, in the U.S., it, it rivals the Chrysler building and an Empire State Building and buildings such as that. So it was a very iconic uh, place to to be. I have no clue why I was there. Doesn't really make sense. Uh, But I wandered in. And in retrospect, I have to believe that it was the community more so than the craft that Mm -hmm. was giving me you know, that was creating that interest for me. Mm-hmm. So much so mm-hmm. till I started hanging out there and I hung out there so much that at one point I started working there and oh. I figured there was no, I was like, uh, let's cut out the middleman. Just pay me. Because <laughs> cause I'm, I'm never, I'm just going to give it back to you. So let's just keep this real simple. Uh, so I, I actually worked at the yarn shop for a while, but it's hard to call it work. Right. So you were just sort of working there to get paid in yarn um, while you had a, you know, a quote unquote real job, different job that actually paid, you know, paid the bills. And, um, and so, and, and it sounds like you got pretty close to, you know, to the ownership there and they knew you were a known person, a, a, you know, best customer turned employee, um, and so you kind of got to see, I guess, the business side of, of, of yarn. I mean, I think from a consumer point of view, you just walk into a yarn shop, there's all these pretty colors and textures and projects and, you know, you kind of pick what you want to, to do next. But, um, but when you, when you kind of flip to the other side of the, of the sales desk, you know, you, you kind of see it from a different perspective when you think about like, what are they ordering and how are they managing inventory and pricing and, customer service. And I don't, I don't know if you, if you remember like sort of understanding that side for the first time. I wasn't studying it with any goal in mind. 
funny aside, uh, at the time that the shop was going through some struggles, and I must have been there in 2000, I want to say 2008. Mm -hmm. And then I, I moved to New York in 2011, 2012. So um, 8, 9, 10 were kind of the, the high points in my relationship with that store. And shortly around the same time, 11, 12, the store actually closed and moved almost 30 miles away. So to me, the other side of the world, I've actually never been, they're still open and functioning with a little different leadership, but I've never actually been to the location, to the new location. But at that time, there was actually kind of whispering and winking of, hey, Sally, don't, don't, don't you want a yarn shop? And I, and it, I was like, nope. Never crossed mm-hmm. my mind. It really didn't cross my mind at that time. So, but of course you see things, you, you see things, you hear things, you assess things. And just like with everything else in life, when you're growing up, it makes a whole lot more sense when you get on the other side. So mm-hmm. I absolutely have um, gems that I go back to and make more sense to me now and influence some of the things that I do in my business that I don't think I fully appreciated at the time I was going through them. Can you tell us about one of those gems, like one of those sort of revelations at that time that you're like, oh yeah, now, yeah, I'm putting that into place. Yes. And, and because this is for, for this is, this podcast is typically for business owners. uh, I don't, I don't feel as crunchy sharing that I practiced saying no before I opened my business because I knew that you were going to get, well, can you get this yarn? And there was an, there's an, an, an instinct. There's this knee jerk reaction to just say, yes, I can get it. And then you have to pay shipping because you're not making your full order. You have to buy 10 when the customer only wants one. Oh, and by the way, the customer isn't even going to want that one when it actually comes in, just so you know. Uh, and, but you're, you're, and in the moment, you're thinking, this is a sale and somebody else is going to get the sale and this is money I could make and this is a customer that I could, wow, and I want to do this. But I had seen that scenario play out in a way that I didn't think was very advantageous most of the time. So I very much had to get my game face on and be prepared to say no. And and it's a complete sentence. No, I, I can't get that for you. That is incredibly, incredibly valuable, perhaps one of the most valuable <laughs> lessons you could have learned. So so I, I do find it interesting that the other um, people who were working there said to you, Sally, don't you want a yarn shop? Even though you had said it never crossed your mind and was not at all on your radar or in your goals, or you know, you said you weren't studying this for any particular purpose, but they must have seen something in you about this that clicked, you know, and that they thought would, would work. Absolutely. 
well, the owner was also a, an attorney, non-practicing attorney. So she, you know, I think gravitated towards me. Sure, it suggested something that I that should not be an impediment to anyone. But I will say that owning a business is a very is a sophisticated career. No matter what the business is, the ownership and running of it is a very sophisticated career. And there are lawyers who can't own, can't run law firms. There are people who knit who can't run yarn shops. It's just, it, they are not synonymous. Just because you can do, there are people, we all know people who make fabulous cakes, but have no business in the catering business. So uh, I believe that, again, it's about this concept of transferable skills. And what people began to see is that this is a person who follows rules, meets deadlines, interprets you know, language. I'm a litigation attorney that I pride myself on that. And that is a different class of attorney. There are people who write multi-million dollar, billion dollar IT software agreements between mega corporations in Manhattan and cannot get themselves out of a parking ticket. So there is something to be said for being able to do what a litigation attorney does. And the thing we do most is interpret facts or interpret data, information, if you will. And most of the time at our height, we have to do it in the moment and turn on a dime and process it and figure out what to do with it all while never breaking a sweat. So, <laughs> so I think that those were those were really valuable skills. I get I guess I should kind of let you in on a, on a small secret. At the time I was hanging out and working at the uh, yarn store for a lot of that time, I actually was working for a pharmaceutical company. I had walked away from law and was doing pharmaceutical sales for a few years because that um you know, it, it uh, because again, I found that selling facts, selling, talking to doctors, all of it was synonymous. It was all a transferable skill set. So I think right. that's probably what people saw in me was my ability to do these these other things that I can actually lay over a myriad of businesses, um, right. not everything but a myriad of business. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Craftsy. And here is a message from Craftsy. At Craftsy, we know making. Whether you're new to the handmade life or looking to advance your skills, we have classes for all maker levels and interests. From knitting and sewing to quilting and embroidery, cooking, baking, paper crafts, and more, Craftsy's instructors guide and encourage you, empowering you to turn ideas into realities. And they have an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Right now, you can get a whole year of their premium membership for only $1.49. Visit craftsyoffers.com to sign up, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. 
For only $1.49, you'll get a full year of access to over 2,000 premium full-length classes. It can be challenging to know where to go to learn new things, especially when you're an absolute beginner. Craftsy's instructors help build strong foundations as they teach, setting you up for success and helping you fix mistakes as you go. Their enthusiasm and strong teaching style make learning accessible to all. If you're an experienced maker and looking for new challenges and fresh projects, Craftsy's for you too. From perfecting your fondant skills to tackling complex stitches, from eye-catching garden design to next steps in sourdough, Craftsy has advanced classes in all crafts from instructors who are experts in their field. With over 2,000 classes, including downloadable patterns and recipes, Craftsy has a class and a craft for everyone. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $1.49. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Get this exclusive offer at CraftsyOffers.com. And now, back to my conversation with Sally. Right, right, right. It's so interesting to see yourself that way with a set of skills that can be applied to different fields. And I think that's really valuable for people to think about with their own skill sets. Like how could you take these and as you said, transfer transfer them to something else. So, um, okay. So you, you you mentioned that you had moved to New York. Was that a career decision or for some other reason? And you were there for a period and now you're back in Detroit. So I just would love to hear a little bit more about that period of your life. Um, absolutely one of the best times of my life. I moved to New York for a career, transferred jobs. By then I was back in law, was working for a major insurance company, transferred to uh, my, my practice was in, in New York, primarily Manhattan, Brooklyn, and, and Staten Island were the courts where I practice and love New York, love everything about it. And yes, it smells and yes, it's dirty and I love it. So I was there, but it was also at a time when Detroit was going, I went, I witnessed the bankruptcy of 2015 from New York. So I get up on Sunday mornings and I'm reading the front page of the New York Times and it's my hometown and everything in there is very familiar to me, the people, the places, the circumstances, and even some of the things that are not being said. I know what they're alluding to. I know what's going on. So that continually kind of tugged at me and my family was here. So I eventually, after the few years, I decided, let me go back because there was starting to be this rumble of let's do this and let's do that. And, and Detroit. And of course, once it's, it's like personal bankruptcy, once you go bankrupt, the next day you get all these credit card offers and Detroit was kind of doing the same thing. Everybody figures, well, that can't happen again. So you've got a clean slate. You've got an opportunity to reinvent yourself, Detroit. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And then the last thing that kind of pushed me over the edge was the fact that I was discovering, because I was back and forth constantly with family, and I was discovering that New Yorkers were coming here. Mm. New York entrepreneurs, the restaurant scene was full of New Yorkers and Detroiters were just like, oh my God, they're from New York. I was like, oh, are you kidding me? They're just people, folks. Come on. 
Um, but it has that cachet. It has that allure that if New Yorkers will come, it's good enough. From a business perspective, I think it's just the price, the price point of entry was lower. The competition mm-hmm. was less. And therefore, why not? No, you're not going to get the same volume possibly in terms of how many tables you're going to turn in your restaurant, et cetera. You might not get the same foot traffic, but your rent is lower. Your square footage right. is bigger and there aren't as many people in town doing it. And your so cost of living, not? your cost of living is a lot lower as well. And, oh, and your, yeah. And your cost of living just as, as an owner, as a person is also a lot lower. So there were so many factors that I think my ego got a little in the way, but it all worked out uh, because it, it was not. At one point, I thought coming back to my own hometown was the worst decision I had ever made. I'd never been so unhappy in my in my entire life. And I just thought I have finally made the, the, the worst move. Um, but that lasted for a while, but I didn't stay there. And, and that's also another thing you got to do when you're in a business. If you get stuck, if you get scared, if you get, you don't know, there's a time to stand still and just do nothing, which is acknowledging that you don't know what to do. You know, if, if you're in a, if, if you're in a hole, if you dig yourself into a hole, what do they say? Stop digging. Exactly. Stop digging. But don't stay there as well. Continue to say, okay, what am I going to do next? How am I going to move forward? So through kind of my malaise, I had to keep looking for what was going to help me get out of this because I knew I wasn't happy elusive term, but I knew I wasn't happy. And I had to figure out what was I going to do to move forward. And that's where entrepreneurship for me. Right. Yeah. And you, you entered, you've, you've entered more than one like pitch comp competition. So um, I think that's really interesting and is, um, is, is good to talk a little bit about. So there was one, I think, was that one Motor City Match? Was that the first one that you entered? Uh, Motor City Match was probably one of the first. Um, and that's uh, been around for probably ooh, 10 years now or, or more. I can't, I can't remember. It was around before I even came back to Detroit. And that's um, a, a funded program. And they award on a a variety of levels. So you might get just business planning all the way up to cash. Uh, So that was the first one that I entered. And and I started on, on that track, on the initial track of business planning. And then I just continued to reapply and ultimately was awarded a cash track for that. But spoiler alert. It wasn't for a knit shop. Right. It was for a nail. Was this for a nail salon? Yes. Right. Yes. So you, you had an idea that you wanted, you wanted to start a business and kind of, you know, be an entrepreneur. Um, but, but the first idea was to do nails. Yep. 
absolutely. I was very sad in Detroit and I decided that I would do this thing that I used to do in Manhattan on a Saturday. You go and you get your nails done and then you go and you have a little lunch and you nosh and you're, and everything is great. And you know, it's New York. No one knows you have $6. You can, you, you know, you can still go to Bergdorf's and have tea with your $6 and nobody knows the difference. So I thought that would make me happier. And then I discovered that this is Detroit and there is no Bergdorf's and there wasn't even an acceptable nail salon. And that's when the New York in me came out. What does New York do? You hit the ground and if you want it, you build it. If it ain't there, you, you create it. And so that's, I went looking for a manicure. There was nothing up to my New York standards. And so I set off to build it. Right. And, and you entered and, and won another pitch competition with that idea, uh, the Michigan Women Forward Contest. And somewhere in there, the idea for what you were going to do as a business shifted away from nails and toward yarn. Was it part of that competition, that second competition process that changed your mind? Or how did it shift to being a yarn, a yarn shop? I saw the, I, the short answer is I don't know. And it drives me nuts to this day. All I can recall is that who, by the way, had already agreed to fund me through a community loan for the nail salon. But I was, and I was still working in that regard in terms of location and, and, and that was really becoming a sticking point for me was finding the right location. So as I was navigating it comes up in my feed or somewhere that they had this pitch competition. Michigan Women Forward had a pitch competition. They do it, I think, a couple times a year in three different parts of the state. They still run it to this day. And but it had to be a new business. And then I get this bizarre amnesia. And the next thing I know, I've taken my business plan. I've tweaked it because I know yarn. I know a lot about running a yarn shop. I've I've been behind the scenes. I've been on both sides of it. I put together this this plan. I put together this slide deck. I enter this pitch competition and I win the pitch. And it was like in an unlike most programs, there weren't a lot of boxes to check. There weren't there wasn't a lot to do. I won the pitch competition and within about 2 weeks I had a $10,000 check in my mailbox. And wow, that's, that's when reality hit. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of pressure because I, it was local and these were people that I, I felt like they're watching me and now I can no longer just talk about it. I have to do because again, that, that ego monster said, I, I can't look bad. Right, right. I, I agree with you with it being local and, and that feeling that they're going to hold you to account now that they've given you this money. So you actually have to act on it um, and make this dream a reality. Um, and so, uh, so, so you won this competition and then you set about um, uh, creating a yarn shop. Um, so where did you end up 
finding the location. I know you you have mentioned location was a little bit of a challenge when you were looking for a, a spot for the nail salon. So um, where did you end up landing? Uh, how did you pick that location? And 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 tell us about those early days of, of getting this store set up. I don't want to tell anybody, make anybody think that this is super, super easy. But the underlying theme to my entire story, back front and going forward, is manifesting and the universe. Everything just fell into place. Um, the universe is just always conspiring in my favor. I believe it conspires in everyone's favor. And, and so I had a home here in Detroit. I hadn't lived in it. it I left it, become rental property, et cetera. Looking at the, the economics of things and how the market was going, it was a good time to sell the house. The realtor that helped me to sell my property calls me up one day and says, I know this spot. She was going to take a commercial space uh, in a where we are located in Detroit. We're just pretty much downtown. We're right at the water. We're adjacent to a world-class uh, riverfront um, area for families and, and people biking, running, et cetera. It's just a gorgeous area. And with free parking, ding, ding, ding. Uh, I have free parking in a, in a major city where parking tickets are like 45 bucks. And um, she called me up and said, hey, they've got all this space. They're looking for tenants. Come on down. And it's the commercial lower level of a, of a mixed use space. And so I went. It was white box. I got the space, got a good price, took some finagling you know, just the standard back and forth. And then um, I got it. I was, again, the universe conspired and delivered someone to me who does commercial, does building and construction as her hobby. It's not her job. She just happens to be really good at it, another woman. And she pulled together an entire team and she was basically my my GC. And she made sure that everything was on task, on target, at or under budget. And we just we just walked it down. But it was the most seamless, stress-free experience, the most fun I've ever had. Uh, and I know that most people don't have the joy of saying that about a construction project, but it absolutely was. And the shop has a, a pretty big like lounge area, like community space, I would say. Um, in comparison to some yarn shops, you might be imagining where you sort of walk in and there's a lot of shelving and a lot of tables with yarn and, and product on it um, and not a lot of places to sit down necessarily. But your shop is kind of the reverse. It's got a lot of community space. And I don't know if it's still there, but at one point, I think there might have been a DJ booth as well. So, so talk a little there. bit about the, yeah, you're, oh, it's still there. Okay, good. About your design or, you know, sort of idea for what the interior, how it would function. Well, our, our pit, my pitch um, was true to my plan that our shop is about community. 
I think that the craft is about community, knitting and crochet and crochet and crochet because people feel a little neglected uh, and they shouldn't. Um, the, the, the fiber arts is about community. And so I was very intentional as I give what I call the New York apartment tour. This is the bathroom. Turn around. This is the kitchen. Um, that, that we call it our living room or I call it my living room. And I have shared with folks that yes, I could give up some of that lounge space for more product display. And I could certainly use more square footage for product display, but I'm not going to do that because I want people to walk in. We tell folks this year, our tagline has been Parker Avenue. It's a vibe. And it is. And people walk in and I have had just some of the most amazing, kindest, most generous, heartfelt words shared with me about the way we make them feel. And, you know, as the quote goes, people don't remember what you say or do. They remember how you make them feel. So everything about my design, everything about my shop is very intentional. How it looks, how it smells, what I stock, how it's laid out. Everything is incredibly intentional because we want to keep that vibe. And yes, when you walk in and you see a fully functional DJ setup that every now and then actually has a DJ, uh, you realize that we are not your, this is not a yarn store you've been to before. Right. And are there other yarn stores in actual, you know, the city of Detroit or are you the only one? I'm the only one. Okay. And, um, and it's called um, Parker Avenue Knits, but it's on Franklin Street. So can you tell us about the, <laughs> the name? And, and does that ever cause confusion where people are putting into those Google Maps like Parker Avenue? Where is it? You know? Yes, there actually is a Parker Avenue. In, in Detroit, we don't use Street Avenue very much. Um, not like you have to in New York or something. So. Um, but there is a street called Parker and it is technically Parker Avenue in Detroit. Funny story. I, that was my first apartment was on Parker, um, 1415 Parker. So, and I have had people say, Oh, they heard it. And they were like, Oh, I know where I'm going. And then they get to Parker street and they're like, there's no yarn shop over here. Where are you? Uh, the name did not come from that. Again, funny little kind of glitch in the, in the system. I was meeting with someone. We were, we were talking about marketing, branding, and somewhere in that, from that discussion, the person that I was engaged with, who marketing and branding professional, the name Parker Avenue came from there. It has, when asked, I could give you a number of meanings. Uh, first of all, it was also the name of the nail salon. So when I changed the idea of the business, I did not change the name. And from the nail salon standpoint, it was to evoke a feeling of luxury. When you say Parker Avenue, people tune out on the er mm-hmm. and all they hear I was just Avenue. thinking that Park <laughs> Avenue, exactly. It's like Park <laughs> Avenue in New York. Yeah. And so the minute you say Park Avenue, everyone who's ever played Monopoly knows that that's, that's high, that's luxury. 
So that was part of the thought process behind the name. And it has evolved from there into also a little pet project of mine or or affinity of mine, which is Dorothy Parker, a low-key, not well-known journalist. She was the original female member of the Algonquin Roundtable, for those who research or Google. Um, And the Algonquin Hotel is still there in New York, and the Roundtable is still there in New York. But that was a tribe of Vanity Fair writers, um, The Atlantic, uh, Vogue, all of these, these, um, you know, kind of tabloidish things of the time. And this was a rogue bunch of bon vivants who spent their afternoons, you know, drinking martinis and talking trash. Kind of similar to what we do at the shop, minus the martinis sometimes. So she she is very much my spirit animal. She is known for some very uh, witty uh, commentary. I, she, you know, the first thing you do in the morning is brush your teeth and sharpen your tongue. That is quintessential Dorothy Parker witticism. Uh, but also people don't know that at the time, uh, she did a lot of things. She went to Hollywood. She was a screenwriter. Uh, she contributed to out-of-work writers during the Red Scare um, when people were run out uh, due to McCarthyism, which meant that she was large. She was donating a lot of funds to support a Jewish ally, being an ally to Jewish writers because they were targeted in Hollywood um, very heavily. So she was very supportive of that. Uh, she was married like three times. One husband, she was married twice. Another husband, they were both writers in screenwriters in Hollywood. She made more than him and uh, she outlived them all. Uh, but ultimately she kind of, she died a little isolated, a little alone and the little, and what a state she did have. She actually left to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whom she had never met. But she left it to him in support of of the civil rights movement um, because she did predecease him, I want to say, by a year. I think she died in 67. He died in 68, um, was killed in 68. And uh, her ashes then, her ashes ended up in her attorney's file cabinet for numerous, numerous years because he didn't know what to do with them. He didn't know what to do. So he just had them. Eventually, the NAACP um, went to, found out, they retrieved her ashes. They actually had her interred at their national headquarters in Baltimore. And only in the past, I want to say COVID throws time off, so it could have been five years. But just in very recent time, the issue was settled between the NAACP and her and Dorothy Parker's family. She was disinterred, reinterred in New York. I want to say in Queens, you know, in amongst her family in a cemetery there. However, the NAACP still owns her rights. And and wow. as vis-a-vis the estate of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So she's she was a pretty, pretty interesting character. And um, uh, it speaks to me. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's really fascinating. Um, okay. So, so you have, um, you have this yarn shop, but you're also, I mean, I'm talking to you right now, I think from your law offices, or at least it looks, it looks like a law office to me. This, my home, my home, this is my home office, but your you know, home office. Of Zoom, I literally was in court an hour ago on Zoom. Okay. So, yes. All right. Yes. Pause, pause. So, so how are you balancing this? Because when I met you and you mentioned to me that you were a litigation attorney, and then I found out that you also owned a yarn shop, I was like, there has to be two people here. Like, how are you um, doing both of these things? How much time are you spending in the yarn shop? Or do you, do you, you must have a fantastic crew of employees as well. I have the most awesome human beings, again, delivered to me, hand-delivered with bows on them by the universe. Um, and they handle things. We're open Wednesday through Sunday. And they navigate things for the most part Wednesday through Friday. And then I actually work all the hours, Saturday and Sunday, unless I'm traveling. And Sunday, I'm the only employee. So Sunday, I'm all alone. Saturday, I always, I have teachers and, and someone there with me, but that's my time. I work seven days a week. I do what I have to do for my practice. And then uh, at night, I order yarn and do all of those things. I pretty much do all of the back end for my business, the social media posting, the interviews, the articles, the blog, whatever, the website, whatever it is, the inventory, I print all the stickers, everything. So wow. yeah, my mother asked me often, when do you sleep? Right. You're very, you're very, very hands-on. And, and the fact that you're there all weekend, yeah, you, you're working seven days a week. So, but I, I'm, you know, I think some people would say, well, that's a recipe for burnout, but maybe for you, it's not. Maybe for you, that's a recipe for rejuvenation. Like, I think it depends on how you see it. Well, I will say this. Absolutely. Anyone. I do not. I, it's not sustainable. And I appreciate that. I know that. And I and I keep that at the forefront in everything I do that I need to manage it and be moving again, moving towards not doing everything or figuring it out or just figuring out what needs to be done. I mean, as we're speaking, I, I low key have a, have a personal knitting project in my, in my lap, because I will just tell you briefly after the first year, I was very proud of having kept the baby alive as I call it, um, which in entrepreneur world, that first year, it, it, it's important. Are your doors open? Are the lights on? So I was very proud of that, but I was a little sad that I had not been able to work on the craft. And I was watching all these people come in and we were laughing and joking and picking fiber and doing all the fun stuff. And I was not getting to do that. And so I had a, a talk with self and said, self, what do you want to do? What's important? And I just decided that every yarn doesn't have to be ordered every day, every night. I am entitled to get a few rows in. So that's what I started committing to doing. I have finished. Uh, I wasn't a big finisher in the first place. Let's just be honest. <laughs> I was, I'm not one of those knitters, but I've started to finish some projects here and there and be able to have that feeling. 
and it's forced me. But yes, be mindful of it. I will tell you, I actually have an, have a, another thing that I devote time to, and that is that I do entrepreneur mentorship. And I do it for dreamers, as, as we kind of refer to them, because I don't think I'm qualified to, to tell people much more than the path I've been on and the path I'm, I'm traveling. And there are those that actually, you know, they find benefit in the encouragement and what have you. But these are, these are the same things that I preach to them. I also listen to for myself is yes, be mindful. This is not sustainable. And the Sunday thing, I actually get a little, I always have to fix myself when the first customer shows up on a Sunday because I race to get there at least an hour before. I usually do an Instagram live, which is my time to say thank you to anyone who might follow me, whatever six people are out there. And to share with them and let them see the space and I show them new stuff um, and kind of let people get a taste of our vibe and, and our feel, especially if they're far away. Um, and it was my time to kind of, in the beginning, it was just time for me to sit there and, and be like, God, what have you gotten me into and what are we doing? And I don't know how to do this. And then 12 o'clock comes, you unlock that door and, and you pretend like you know what you're doing again. So Sundays really were rejuvenation for me, and I and I absolutely love that time. And now I get more and more customers. So, uh, but that's okay. That's a good thing. That is, that's a good yeah. Thing. And you had a really beautiful article. Um, just as the last thing to talk about before we get to your recommendations in the um, the Detroit Free Press, they came right around the time that you opened and took beautiful photos and the article is long and very celebratory. Um, so did that, was that like a turning point for you when that came out? I'm imagining a lot of people saw it and were like, oh, wow, I want to, I want to come in and visit maybe even people visiting Detroit or, you know, bringing people in for the first time. Absolutely. There's nothing like free advertising. Uh, but I was, I was just so, again, the universe just, I did not orchestrate that. There was no press release that was brought to me. And, uh, it just turned out that the journalist could not have worked harder to capture the essence of who and what we were. And I think that's something that business people will find in all of the podcasts, everything, every, everything you study these right now, at least talks about uh, your credibility, your vulnerability, um, and making sure that you are just being transparent with who and what you are. And that came through in that article. And it is totally true. It's totally who we are. And every time somebody comes in, I think they're almost a little surprised that what you see is absolutely what you get. Yeah, you definitely get that sense from that piece. So um, that's great. Yeah, I, I loved reading it. And I will link to that in the show notes for people who want to um, take a look at it because it's it is very lovely. So um, I wanted to get to your um, recommendations because you've got a couple good ones on here. So um, you were mentioning that you were enjoying the Anya dress pattern by Susie Sparkles. Yes. yes, that's actually what I'm working on right now. The second one. Um, I did a first, she, she's, she's being finished up and I am working on a second one. 
It's just, it's, it's just enough. And I love baby things because they're quick. And who doesn't love a hand knit baby item? So, um, I, I knit them and, and, you know, I don't even know that I had anybody in mind, but it's a lovely way to showcase fibers, um, quick and easy. And, um, it's, I'm really, really enjoying it. I, I, the first and the second are being done in two different fibers. And either way, lace work at the top for the three to six month, I've got eight inches of stocking net. So it's something I can do mindless, get back into the lace work at the hem and we're done. Yeah. And, you know, when you get a hand knit garment like that as a parent for your baby, you know, you're never going to give it away. Like that child can outgrow that in six (laughs) months and it will get packed up and put in the attic because my children wore um, hand knit items, sweaters and like jumpsuits that my husband wore when he was three months old. My my children wore them because... My mother-in-law saved them because, of course, you're not going to just, yeah. you know, give that to goodwill. <laughs> like, those things are so exactly. precious. Yeah, I think that's that's a it's such a beautiful gift to receive from somebody. So, um, and then you were saying that you're um, also making the um, into the Echo Wrap. I don't know what this one looks like. Oh man! Oh man! Folks have got to grab the into the it's into the echo. Uh, the the designer escapes me, but it is on um, it is on Ravelry. It is it's a it's a mosaic, and okay. it's so easy. It is so easy, um, and so it it it's one of those things that presents way. Um, it's more impressive than, than it is difficult. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely, it's Cheryl Fouth, F-A-U-S-T. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Cheryl Fouth into the Echo. Check The photos are phenomenal. And I can tell you that it, it, once you pick your colors and start working it up, it is stunning. So we've got, I think, four or five folks throughout the shop that are, we're all, in 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 progress and I'm just it's one of my faves. Takes a little that's, concentration, so it's it's not my travel piece, but it's that's amazing. awesome. And and your last recommendation is a business book called Fundamentally Different. I have not read this one before. So is it focused more on creating culture, like company culture? Yes. Yes. Very much about company culture and just in it. I think it it resonated with me because when I talk to mentees, I talk about the five W's plus plus H when what when what where why and how. However, I tell them the why is going to be your compass. Why is what is your north star? Why is the thing that you measure every opportunity and decision against? Does it take me closer to my why or further away? And that's how you can make a decision. Someone may offer you a pot of money, but is it all money isn't good. So how does this factor into your why? And more and, and just as importantly is the thing of what do I do when there is no money? What do I do when I am working seven days a week, 12 hours a day? I'm tired. 
I, you know, I'm not getting finding joy today, yesterday, and maybe not tomorrow. Why am I doing this? Why am I going into my personal? Because you have to say, is this, even though there's struggle, even though this might not be a quote unquote quintessential good time, is it getting me closer to my why? Am I still moving towards my why? And that is basically what they're saying in the fundamentals is you have to set your compass. You have to set your foundation. You have to figure out what your company is about, what goals it wants to make, and where the boundaries are, and then function within that and remove any and everything or one that doesn't fit in there. That's very sage advice. Thank you for that, Sally. And thank you just- Overall, for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast, it was it was really great hearing your story and having the chance to talk to you. Well, thank you. I hope it inspires someone. And and it's and my biggest recommendation of all, I'll just tell you, is Craft Industry Alliance. Oh, thanks, Sally. And, and I'm not I'm not just <laughs> saying that. The things I I pick up are just invaluable, and compared to the price of membership, they're practically free. So I I tell everyone, it's an incredible, I know that it is work for you, but please know that it does not go unnoticed and unappreciated. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sally. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Craftsy. Calling all crafters. Are you ready to dive deep into your favorite crafting projects and learn new techniques along the way? Then it's time to join Craftsy Premium Membership. For only $1.49, you'll receive a full year of access to expert-led tutorials, patterns, and projects in every category you can imagine. With a massive library of resources at your fingertips, you'll be able to create your best work yet and bring your crafting dreams to life. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I will see you next time.